Good afternoon, good morning, good evening, get, get whatever time it is that you listen to this podcast. This is your host, William Moore, and this is Chill Time is Will Time. Uh, today, I brought in a, a good friend of mine, actually, who um, who's going to talk about actually uh, a topic that's actually near and dear to me. Um, it's important to me because what he's going to talk about is uh, something that's affected my family a lot, um, and that is addiction. Um I've known how long? How long have we been known each other, Doug? Probably about five or six years, I want to say. Yeah, so about five or six years. Um, we met through Doug's sister, who I used to work with, actually, and I found out like he was in a you know actually at the beginning you were working towards being an addiction counselor mm-hmm. like that first year, and then you finally uh, you graduated, got your certifications, and. Um, I think addiction is something that a lot of people out here uh, either suffer with, suffer from, or it is something that everybody can relate to because somebody in their family relate uh, suffers from it. Um, so I just thought it would be real cool um, for Doug to kind of come on and talk about this. And um, uh, without further ado, I'll go ahead and let Doug introduce himself. Go ahead, man. Yeah. Well, thanks for having me. Well, this is uh, it's an honor to uh, join you for for the podcast and uh yeah my name is Doug Anderson and yeah I'm uh I'm a resident of St. Paul lifelong right, right. lifelong resident uh, grew up in the eastern suburbs Maplewood actually the school that you so if uh, I can't do this without saying hi to my sister Lee <laughs> um but yeah my sister and uh you worked with my sister at Webster Elementary School yep, in, in yep. North North St. Paul. And that actually, that's the part of town I, I grew up in. Uh, I don't know if you knew I'm, I'm an alum of L.C. Webster. I actually remember you saying <laughs> that one time at, at your sister's house. Yeah, so, yeah, I'm uh, I'm a local guy, and, uh, yeah, I'm just glad to be here sharing with you today. Cool. And uh, as we get into the conversation, you'll you'll hear, like, I mean, this is a pretty sharp guy. Um, He knows his stuff. And he's got a lot to, uh, he's got a lot to offer and a lot to bring. And um, I believe a lot of you will learn a lot from this. You'll either walk away with a a better understanding of what you may personally be going through or a significant other may be going through. And... um, hopefully walk away feeling encouraged knowing that it's not the end of the world and that you have some resources or tools to uh, tap into. So um, first things first, Doug, how long have you been an addiction counselor? So I got licensed in the fall of 2015. Um, I went to graduate school. Hazelden Betty Ford Foundation has a graduate school. Now they have an online component to it, but 
when I went through it, it was mainly uh, that you had to attend classes <coughs> up at their main facility up in Center City, Minnesota. Right. And so, yeah, I, uh, I got a master's in addiction studies, and then I uh, took the Minnesota test to become a licensed alcohol and drug counselor. So that's the license I hold, which is an LADC, which, uh, which allows me to do addiction counseling uh, in a clinical setting in the state of Minnesota. Okay. And as far as being an addiction counselor, was this something that you had in mind for a while, or is it, was it more or less a career path that you fell into? Yeah, so so I can't talk about the professional part of it um, and and have a discussion about addiction unless I bring in my own personal story, right? Uh, which is actually very common in uh, in the addiction treatment world that a lot of people that work in the field also uh, have uh, personally struggled with addiction and hopefully are living in recovery from it. So that's a part of my story too. <clears throat> um. I don't know how far you want me to go back. Um, well, however you feel, man. However, I roll with it. However, I want to bring it. Yeah. So I um, I got into recovery uh, from addiction in 1990. So my sober date is May 7th, 1990. So uh, this past May, I celebrated um, 28 years in recovery. Right, congrats. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh. It's a much better way to live. <laughs> um, yeah, so I, uh, like a lot of people, I started uh, using uh, very young. I was 12 years old when I started drinking and and uh, smoking weed, which was, wasn't out of the ordinary when I was growing up. Uh, most of my friends were drinking and getting high by the time they were in middle school. Not everybody, but right. it was very common. And uh, looking back on it now, I knew. Well, I didn't know at the time, but looking back at it now about how I used, um, I, I had a problem right from the beginning. Like uh, I struggled with blackout. Like I would, you know, be hanging out with my friends. Uh, <laughs> it's not funny, but uh, like drinking Boone's Farm wine and you know, stealing beer and um, other alcohol from, you know, parents or older siblings and pinching weed from family members' bags. and um, But we used to just get wasted young, you know. It, it's interesting to me because I look at I look at my nephew, who's 15, and my other nephew, who's 12, and I think about them getting high, and I'm like, that's just wrong. Like, <laughs> right. Kids shouldn't get high or drunk. It's so, but it's I had a problem. It's commonplace these days, though. What's that? It's commonplace these days, like yeah. you said. Yeah, and so, so I, I had a problem with it from the beginning. I couldn't control how much I used or how often I used. Um, I usually got... Uh, I was usually in a blackout when I drank, and and that really continued for for 15 years until I was 27 years old, and I had legal problems um, over about a 10-year period. I had three DWIs, and on the outside, like the people that knew me knew I had a problem, but um, in in my mind, I was still 
doing a pretty good good job hiding it from people. I had jobs, I had good jobs, and so you're more like a, <clears throat> you're like a functional alcoholic. Yeah, yeah. That uh, as an addiction counselor, um, I can't stand that term, functioning alcoholic or functioning addict. But it's a very descriptive term, and right. everybody uses it. Because from my understanding, you know. And I'm thinking in terms of like some of my relatives who've had issues with drugs or alcohol. Um, that's what prohibits them from even getting help is because they think, well, it's not affecting work. It's not affecting, you know, some of my high priority areas. So therefore, it's not a problem. It doesn't matter mm-hmm. if, you know, I come home every day and, you know, I'm getting drunk off, you know, drunk off my butt and don't know, you know, which way is up. Right. Because I still make it to work on time. I still get my job done and, and so on and so forth. Right. I'm still functioning. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So that was that was kind of kind of my story is uh, I, I, I thought I was hiding it pretty well. And but the legal consequences were something that I couldn't ignore. So by the time <clears throat> by the time I got my third one, um, the legal consequences were pretty heavy. I had to do some time in the county county workhouse and uh, lots of fines and lost my license for a year and a half and and um, yeah and so for me well and I also had court-ordered treatment which was an important part of it for me so by the time I went through all those consequences um, I, I couldn't deny it anymore I couldn't run I couldn't hide I I had to face the fact and and for me it was a huge relief like going through that process, going through treatment, going through all those legal consequences, um, it took all of that pain. One of the things, um, as a as a counselor, you learn that uh, in working with other people, you learn that pain is one of the biggest motivators for change. Right. Like when there's some type of pain inflicted up upon people, whether it's physical or emotional or psychological or whatever type of pain uh, a situation in your life brings you right sometimes it takes and and in addiction people refer to it as their bottom right right they reach rock bottom whatever that might be um for me the rock bottom was uh the legal consequences and all of the things that surrounded that and the so fear and pain um was what really motivated me to build a different life, and and uh, I got into uh, the program of Alcoholics Anonymous and uh, the fellowship that that provided, and the support to go to meetings and to meet other people and to know that you're not alone. That that uh, that was really what it took for me, and and I've never never looked back, never. Also very blessed that I never struggled with relapse. So some people um, kind of continually go through relapse. They'll be in recovery for a while, and then they'll go back, and then they'll be in recovery for a while and go back. But I never, I've never relapsed, and, and I'm very, very thankful for that. Awesome, awesome. So what are – I know, like, for for the most part, you know, a lot of people have general knowledge about – um, why people turn to drugs and alcohol, um, you know, self-medicating, um, some, you know, purely recreational and stuff like that. But in your, in your job as a as a, an addiction counselor, what are some of the reasons that you encounter the most of why people 
uh, turned to drug and alcohol abuse, um, and it and then leading to an addiction. Yeah. So one of the factors that uh, is is a large contributor to whether or not uh, addiction develops, and um, I'll use the I'll, I'll talk about the concept of addiction as a disease because that's really the way that we have to to look at it now, and it's only been you know one maybe two generations that we've been using that language, and even people still struggle with it, but. But when you look at the environment that someone grows up in, so if, uh, let's say, you grow up in a family where um, your family members, you, let's just say they, that alcohol and marijuana are very common in the household and in the community everybody uses, right. and you see it as, as very normal, right? Right. So that's definitely one of the factors, um, whether someone develops addiction um, is whether it's around. So that that's definitely one of them. Um, and then then the idea that that people use it. You mentioned self medication. That it becomes uh, a way to cope and manage in your life, which is it's an interesting reality because it actually is probably the worst thing you can do to cope and manage, right? Right. <laughs> you know, it's like right. you're trying to... Because you don't, I mean, you don't, your problems don't go away. You're just drowning them out for the moment or you're right. beco- uh, be- becoming oblivious to them for however long it is that you're under the influence. The, your problems become compounded. Right. But in your mind, you think that you're... Escaping. Escaping or somehow avoiding or... Yeah, so so that's definitely a factor. And then the and then the interesting thing is that, you know, some people can use different substances their entire life and not uh not have problems because of them. Right. So there's some kind of uh genetic factor that that contributes to whether someone is an addict or an alcoholic. Right. I've it, heard that. I I I was a uh, I can't remember what profession this young lady was in. I don't even remember where we were when I was having this conversation. But the the conversation, everybody was talking about, I, I was out. And um, the conversation came up about, my friends always like to, like, rat, you know, like trip on me or make jokes about me because I've never taken a drink of alcohol in my life. Never tried a drug, never smoked, never did, never done anything. And, uh... I remember her asking why, and I said the reason I don't want to is because um, I have a high rate of addiction on both sides of my family, especially when it comes to alcohol. And I understand that it's hereditary. And given that, out of all my siblings, like you know, out of all my siblings, all of them pretty much, you know, drink. They drink, you know, casually, um, not very often, and that none of them have a problem. My luck would be I'd be the one that if I ever tried it, I'd have the issue, right? Right. And she was saying that she had heard something about, like, that um, with the way the human brain develops, that if you haven't developed an addiction or whatever by the age of 25 or become addicted to something by the age of 25, chances are that you won't. Now, I, she seemed to know what she was talking about, 
But I told her, no, thank you, I'll pass. Right. I've been going on <laughs> over 30 years, right. not drinking or trying anything. I've enjoyed myself, right. you know, sober and being it. So I don't, you know, I don't, no need for me to try. Mm-hmm. Um, but what, being, being that this is your profession, what do you know about that? Can you confirm that or what's the deal with that? Yeah, so, so one, of the, one of the ways that they describe it is that if you have it in your family, then you are genetically predisposed to have the disease of addiction. Yep. So let's compare it to um, when I'm working with clients or doing, you know, education work, uh, doing group work, educating people about the disease. Uh, I talk a lot about that, about the fact that if you have alcoholism or drug addiction in your family, that the likelihood that you will get it goes way up. So compare it to something like heart disease, high blood pressure, um, and, and a good one to compare it to is diabetes, that if, if you have that in your family, it doesn't guarantee that you're going to get it, but it means that, that you're genetically predisposed oh, right. to get it, right? Right. So that if you, you know, don't take care of yourself, and in, so let's use you as the example, in your case, it, yeah, so if you started using, you would be at higher risk than than the general population because there is that genetic predisposition in your family. Right. And and she's right to a certain extent and she, I'm not I don't know, you know, specifically this the the research that she's looking at, but part of what she's talking about is that addiction usually develops a little earlier in life so that um when you add so if you add environment, um Let's say a teenager grows up with it in their home, in their community. They have it in their family. There's other addicts and alcoholics in their family. They have the genetic predisposition. And they start using as an adolescent, then their likelihood goes way up. Right. It's, it's very similar to, you've heard of ACEs, right? Mm-hmm. Adverse childhood experiences. Yeah. Or whatnot. So, that, I mean, that falls right in along with ACEs, like whatever, you know, these different uh uh, obstacles or issues children expe- uh, experience growing up or face growing up, they have a high chance of repeating those behaviors or those experiences for their own youth or you know children or for themselves as they get older. So it right. just falls right along with mm-hmm. that with that study. Yeah, because if you're using if you're using a substance on a regular basis, when your body and your brain are developing. As an adolescent, comes accustomed to it. That's part of the development. It's part of the development. Right. So that's what she's talking about. If you've developed past that point, then your your chances go down. Okay. I just had never seen the research on myself, <coughs> and and it, it you know it, it wasn't like it was somebody talking off the cuff. But still, to this day, it's just not something that I want to risk. And like I said, I've done good so far on my own. You know what I mean? Like, not needing that, but, but I that figured, does, you know. That doesn't negate the, the genetic predisposition, though. Right, you still right. have that. Exactly. Yeah. I just, you know, I figured, you know, what better what what better person to ask than somebody who's, whose work is, is in the field. Right. So, yeah. So, another question I have for you is, um, and if you could answer, mm-hmm. um, Kind of give people an idea of uh, how many people in this country are like facing or face issues of addiction, because I know the numbers have gone up like dramatically. The addiction rates have gone up dramatically in the past few decades. 
Um, so what do you attribute that to, and, and, and what are those numbers do you know? The most recent stats uh, I, that I've heard, and it, it's kind of constantly changing because addiction is becoming much more studied, and, and as the decades pass, we learn more and more about it. But uh, I think one in ten in the United States struggle with addiction, so maybe 10% of the population. Yeah. Wow. And what, what would you attribute a lot of that to? Just kind of what you touched on earlier with, uh, you know, whether or not you're around it, childhood experiences. Yeah, so so as the, the decades have passed, you know, it hasn't been that long now since we've been treating the disease. Right. Um, but it's becoming more and more accepted to seek treatment, to admit kind of, so so addiction is categorized as a disease um, in the, it, it's described as a substance use disorder in the Diagnostic Statistical Manual, professionally uh, a tool, it's called the DSM, they're, they're in the fifth version of that right now, Right. but that's the the manual that categorizes all mental disorders, right? Right. So that's put out by the American Psychiatric Association. So a lot of people don't really look at it that way, but it's, you know, it, it, it affects the brain, it affects behavior, and so that's kind of how it's categorized as a disease, as substance use disorder, and <clears throat> the more and more time that goes by, we're going gonna to have more people coming out and, and seeking treatment, you know. So right. it, it might be one in ten now. Uh, I, I don't know that the numbers are going down. I know? actually have a, and I don't have anything to back this up. This is just a, a guess, an educated guess or uh, uh, a theory of mine. Mm-hmm. I think that it will go past one in ten. Uh, and, and this is the reason why. Because, and, and we're going to talk about this a little bit later, um, the rate of of uh, mental health issues that people face in this country. I believe last I looked, it was like one in four people have a mental health issue in this country, right? Yeah. And the and this is and what I'm about to say is very nuanced. Um, a lot of people with mental health issues are like just given medication right off the bat to face those issues. They're not without and 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 there's a lot of you know. You know things that go behind that, such as, you know, whether or not you know doctors get kickbacks from pharmaceutical com- uh, companies and stuff like mm-hmm. that. And the reason that I say it's nuanced and I kind of have an issue with it is because um, some people who have mental health issues do need medication. There's no way to avoid it. They need it to cope. They need it to get by. And for that, um, we need to do all we can to help to help them. Um, because I think that's one of the biggest issues that we have running this country now is the fact that people with mental health issues are overlooked and not addressed. And there's also like a sort of like a classist way of addressing it, right? Mm-hmm. So poor uh, or marginalized people that have mental health issues, they're just kind of kicked off to the side. But the moment a celebrity or somebody with money has mental health issues, they're they're met with all this um, sympathy uh, and empathy and given all these you know different excuses and they're given the best resources and help available. Um, on the on the other end of that is people have a lot of mental health issues, but as a country we we refuse to acknowledge um, that the cause of some of those mental health issues, not all of them, is the way we operate in this country, right? Mm-hmm. Um, 
we don't address um, uh, poverty. We don't address um, different social determinants of health. You know, poverty, uh, proper nutrition, um, the type of lives that we live here. It's like very high pace, all stress. You know, not enough. You know, me time for people. People are, you know, there's the word self care. Not enough and chill time. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. Exactly. You know, there's a there's a, the word self care is thrown out a lot by a lot of employers, mm-hmm. but they don't really give their employees access to that or the time to to indulge in that. You know, it's like, yep, you need to take care of yourself, but we need you to meet ten deadlines by in three days. Like, well, how are they supposed to do that, especially if they feel like their jobs. Um, are you know are in danger? I mean, like I said, with the fact that a lot of doctors and you know pharmaceutical country uh, companies are driven by the bottom line, you know, making the dollar, and a lot of these doctors are getting kickbacks. It's easy for it's easier for them to prescribe a drug than it is to uh, address everything else. Um, society, you know, society wise, that you know helps to um, drive those mental health issues. Um, I know I just kind of went off on a huge tangent about that, but well, I mean, what do you think about that? No, that's cool. I like uh, I like tangents. It's it's hard for me to to talk about this stuff without looking at the broader uh, cultural issues of our society. You know, so right. so when we talk about uh, let's let's just look at alcohol. You know, right? And if uh, if you're a teenage uh, specifically a teenage boy watching sports on TV, you know, it gets the beer ads, right? Right. Um, what's that? What's the, um, what's that current one? Dilly Dilly. The, the, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Was Bud it Captain Light. Morgan or no, is it, is the, it, is the is Bud that? Light Dilly okay. Dilly? Yeah, 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 yeah. Like it's always oh, so creative and funny and fun, and it becomes a popular culture catch slogan, dilly dilly, right? <laughs> right. And it's like people are, are saying it, you know, and it's and it's about a beer, you know, like the most interesting man in the world. You got to drink beer, Dos Equis, to be the most interesting man in the right, world. I don't right. think so. You know, and it's like how, so, so all of that stuff is, is super important when I think about you know, and, and from the perspective of a man uh, grown up as an adolescent, um, beer, alcohol, it was all a part of the socialization, uh, the culture that I grew up in. It's how you become a quote-unquote man, how right? how you become a man, you know? You slam a beer and you do all the... Can we say shit on here? You can say whatever you okay, want. Okay, cool. <laughs> I'm not sponsored by some all right. you know, yeah, public so- TV station. <laughs> say whatever you feel like saying. So... Yeah, so you drink and and, and it's really um, you know endorsing uh, young uh, boys doing stupid shit. You know, it's right. it's kind of ridiculous. So, uh, which also we're not going to get off on this tangent, but maybe uh, maybe we'll come back and talk about uh, do another episode of uh, toxic masculinity because oh yeah, we've already because, discussed it. I'm gonna have you back a couple yeah, more times. Yeah. We got a lot of things to talk about because so. the <clears throat> the use of alcohol in how boys are developed and, you know, what it takes to be a man and uh, what are you willing to overlook about your behavior. It's all a part of it, you know. I mean, look at the the campus that we're sitting on, you know. Right. Um, frat houses and, and what's accepted behavior. I mean, our, our, our country's going through a huge, and it's good. It's just there's a lot of, a lot of tension. 
there's a lot of uh, a pushback about uh, all the issues that we have, and one of them is is how how people use alcohol and how men conduct themselves, and so yeah, it's. Uh, the way that uh, that it happens in this country is I hope someday uh, that they won't be able to advertise alcohol on TV anymore. I mean, when you uh, cigarettes used to be advertised on TV, right, and in magazines, not anymore. So maybe someday alcohol will will also. But as long as it's a part of the machine and a part of the the business uh, world, um, you know, it just kind of manufactures those dependencies right right and before i want to make sure i i say this too before we go on to the next question um as i was talking about mental health earlier i'm you know i'm very sensitive to the topic um i know there are a lot of people that listen to this podcast um and by no means was i saying i want to make sure that i'm clear that i was saying that that i wasn't saying that anybody who has mental health issues should not be medicated or, or, or can control their issues without medication. What I, basically what I was saying is um, we look to do that before anything else. Um, I'm well aware that in this country we have people who need medication and we don't give them medication. Instead, we give those people who have mental health issues and need medication, we give them jail time. And then there's some people who, you know, need, you know, need therapy or, or, or need some more structure and don't need medication at all, and we give them medication. You know, it's a very backwards way on how we handle things. So I just want to make sure I say that and put that out there um, in case anybody's listening. Um, I don't want anybody that, you know, who, who, who may be listening to this podcast who um, does take medication um, and feels that they need it. I don't want you to feel slighted. I want you to know that I do understand the nuance of it. And basically, if the shoe fits, wear it. If it does not apply to you, then it most definitely was not about you. Um, so I just want to leave it at that. But um, uh, the, the, the next question I have for you, um, uh, what, what are you seeing is the most uh, abused substance uh, or source of addiction? Is it alcohol? Is it street drugs? We're hearing a lot these days about prescription drugs. Or is it something else altogether um, that we're just not hearing about? Yeah, it's all of those. Um, you know, we, we talked a lot about alcohol. Alcohol is the is one of the constant substances that's been abused in our country. I don't, you know, that's that never goes away. Um, right. Uh, probably the majority of, of treatment of addiction is for alcohol. Yep. But... Um, that's changing a lot with, and and I think, I think that abuse of prescription drugs has probably always been a problem. Yep. As long as they've been prescribed by doctors, people have been abusing them. Right. And becoming addicted to them. You know, in the in the sixties, um, what's that Rolling Stone song? There was a line. Uh, is the name of the song "Mother's Little Helper"? That was about uh, mom, mama taking pills and hmm. to help her get through the day, and um, it's always it's always been an issue. But the thing that's changed is that is that now we're becoming a little bit less tolerant of that stuff. I think, and mm-hmm. so the medical community is being held accountable. Um, you know, the over prescribing of prescription, the stuff that you were talking about. So. You know they they're they're starting to develop just in the infant stages um, 
but databases so that any prescription that's written anywhere in the country is connected to a database right. so that people can't shop doctors. So what, yeah, yeah, so yeah. what people I've heard about do is that. they go to multiple doctors, doctors refill right? prescriptions right. so they can either sell so or abuse, abuse for themselves. Correct. Right. So now they're, they're, they have uh, systems in place. And they're, they're, it's not quite there yet, but, but they're taking steps so that people can't do that stuff. So, I mean, that, that's always been a problem. It's still a problem, abuse of uh, prescription drugs. Um, street drugs are always a problem. You know, uh, I've worked over the last few years with a lot of, and a lot of young people, um, opiate addiction, heroin, um, or, you know, in the pill form, or uh, meth, huge problem in our country. Um, so is, that, is that one of the hardest ones to treat people for, meth? What, what's probably the hardest um, substance to treat people for? Man, meth meth tears people's lives apart. It's it's a nasty, nasty disease. I don't know that it's harder to treat necessarily, but it's it's hard to to look at the effects of methamphetamine yeah. addiction. It's it's a really, really powerful drug, and and physically, emotionally, psychologically, it just tears people apart but heroin addiction is oh it's making man. a comeback oh man it's making a huge comeback yeah. uh i remember talking about it at you know at work you know in my, in my job uh my day job you know in public health and in one conversation we were talking about we were having a conversation about equity and how um i made the comment how is equity really equity because what we're doing is we're choosing, we say that we're going to start treating everybody for like opioid abuse or whatever, and we're going into the low income neighborhoods to treat people for opioid abuse. But when you still look at the numbers, they're not treating everybody. They're treating, you know, white addicts, not black addicts. And as far as the Twin Cities is concerned, last I heard, which was a couple months ago, the number of uh, opioid, opioid deaths for African Americans is actually rising. Um, in the Twin Cities. So I asked the question, I was like, is that, is that really even equity? You know, when you're picking and choosing who you're going to help, that's not equity at all. That's just you being selective and helping out somebody else other than the rich. Yeah, there's no reason that, that the, that the uh, inequities, uh, you know, that the disparities for addiction would be any different than any of the other ones for incarceration or education. Right. Um, so yeah, I mean, who gets treated is is definitely it's always been an issue, and you know, except access to. So so one of the biggest issues is is health insurance, right? Yeah. So there's disparities in who has health insurance, um, racial disparities, and there, Minnesota has a has a little different system that allows us a little bit of resource that other states don't, where the state allocates funding and it's uh, given to the counties and then they, they distribute it so that people that don't have insurance can get treatment. Okay. So it, the the racial statistics for treatment is probably better in Minnesota than other states, but 
it's, it's probably not close to good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Because, like, yeah, I mean, like we are saying, like, so addiction and drugs don't discriminate. No. You know, it don't discriminate against, you know, race, age, gender, religion, any of that. Mm-mm. But there is a, you know, a stark contrast in the way we, we, we do discriminate in how we um, approach addiction or who we help with addiction. Mm-hmm. Is there any certain thing that you would do personally? Let's say we gave total control to how we ad- address the, the, the issues of addiction to Doug Anderson. Hmm. What would Doug do? Oh, man. Uh, more treatment, more education. Um, I would uh, make it, uh, a, I think, a stronger part of curriculum in starting an elementary school mm-hmm. where you're, you're helping. Because everybody, it's around everywhere, right? Oh, yeah. So little kids, let's say uh, my sister's fifth grade class at, at Webster Elementary, the kids in that classroom know addiction because people in their family have it they see it right they suffer the abuse and neglect because of it and so if we're not educating them about it we're just sweeping it under the rug like other societal issues right right so i think i would make uh i would speed up the process i mean it's getting better as the generations go on you know, younger younger people are, I think, more open uh, about talking about problems and issues. I think young people are are tired of the shit. You know, right? We've, yeah. been, we've been handing the, the the mess down generation after generation, and I think the yeah. younger younger people are saying, "I'm I'm tired of this," and and you know, and I'm going to name the things that I see, right? And I want to change it. So. You know, doing doing more of that, giving them resources, giving them ways to to identify it, um, and then just more more access to treatment. You know, there should be more. At one time, I think there were three sober high schools in in the state, and I think it might be back down to one. They, we should have a lot more settings for adolescents and teens to help support them. I mean, I I got. I got into recovery when I was 27 years old. I can't even imagine uh, how difficult it is to be a teenager dealing with peer pressure and culture and trying to... I have a lot of respect for for the young people that I've worked with that are that are doing recovery because, it, to me, it, it it's hard because it's so accepted. You know, it's just... It's, it's part of life. It's cool. You know, it's right. cool, cool to use and, and abuse and... Be, be dangerous and risky and so yeah that um, I might have to think a little on that I might have more ideas about that you said that I could basically be my show it it's your show you're running the show alright that's you're my, the captain of the ship alright I like that a lot that's uh, those are my those are my initial thoughts I might might get back to you though okay alright is there a <clears throat> is there a particular group of people or age range that you've noticed seem to be a lot more vulnerable to addiction? Um, age? Yep. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think late adolescent, early early 20s, um, over the last few years, we, we've seen those numbers go up a lot. And it's people that are, 
you know, moving into adulthood. And, and I think they're, you know, they're seeing that uh, life is hard, you know, and, and it's stressful and the world is a mess. And using is, is kind of a, a way to cope and manage with that, you know. And that, that gets into the issues of, you know, if, if you're surrounded by uh, difficult living situations, circumstances, poverty, abuse, yeah. um, and with the it current, becomes a, a right. very effective way to escape your your painful reality. You yep, know? and with the social economic situation that we have going on in the uh, in this country, with as far as like uh, where different you know groups or ethnicities ethnicities of people live, the lack of resources in their communities, that's where you start to see. Um, commonalities or um, what's the word I'm looking for where you start to see certain groups of people being affected by drug abuse more than others because it, it doesn't necessarily have anything to do with the fact uh, of their race other than their particular race or, or, or ethnic group has been kind of the way our, 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 our cities are put together and you know the, like I said the social economic situation they're kind of like herded into these certain parts of town that lack the lack the you know lack the most resources um and so because of you know stress lack of resources no jobs you know different things like that they do turn to drugs and alcohol to cope Mm -hmm. right and so that's that's what i would say to anybody who because i've heard people say stupid stuff like well you know black people you know use this more than anybody else or Native people use this more than anybody else. And like realize that it has nothing really to do with their race, other than their race, um, because of the way the country's set up. Their race has been used um, as a way to kind of put them in the most undesirable situations and living conditions. That is the relationship with that. It has nothing to do with you're black or you're native or you're white, so you're destined to be addicted or you abuse you know, said drug or, or source of alcohol. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it gets, it gets back to that environmental issue. Right. You know, environment and culture. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What, do you, um, what do you think is the most difficult thing for sober people to understand and comprehend about addiction? Hmm. Good question. Um, I think the... The shift and and people who have the disease of addiction struggle with this as much as everybody else does too. But the the shift from seeing it as a choice. I you know what? Seeing it as a choice to seeing it as a disease. I gotta agree with you. Yeah. Because personally, so I'll tell you how that relates to me. Um, when I was younger, uh, I grew up in my grandma's house. I had a couple family members that um, that really struggled with alcohol, and I used to always stay mad at them. Like, are you choosing to do this? You know, my grandma would say, "Oh, they don't understand, or they don't know what's going on." You know, because they're drunk, or you know, yada yada yada. And I would say, "No, that's not true. They know what's going on because they can tell you what happened the next day." And you know what I mean, like right. and. How else would you expect a, you know what I'm saying, an angry, frustrated, 
you know, middle schooler going into high school age kid to respond. You know what I mean? All I know is there's chaos going on, you know, in the house. And I remember the way that I used to respond to that, too. I used to always feel guilty sometimes because um, some of my coaches in school would always talk about how, how much, how hard I worked. And they would tell other people about how hard I worked, other, other players how hard I worked. Um, and, you know, William Moore would stay after late for this and still be running. They're still lifting this and that and other. And what they, I would always feel guilty like hearing them say that because what they didn't realize is the reason I stayed after with the listening, to, you know, doing all that extra work because I really didn't feel like going home because I knew it was at home waiting. And I always th- thought, just like you said, it was a choice. Mm-hmm. But the funniest thing happened. I'll tell you the thing that turned it around for me. Um, you remember Jill Scott Heron, right? Mm-hmm. You remember that song, Home is Where the Hatred Is? I don't know that specific song. So I'll, I'll, I'll play it for you. Yeah. Matter of fact, it'll probably be the intro and outro music to, to, uh, to this interview. Okay. But, it, it, you know, he, 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 for one, he's famous for his music and his poetry. But everybody also knows he struggled big time with heroin. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the song, Home is Where the Hatred Is, he talks about his battle with it. Like, how he hates it. How it makes him hate himself, how it makes him hate his life, and he can't let go, and sometimes he wants to die, and and nobody gets it, and people are asking him, they're telling him he needs to stop, he needs to quit, and at one point he's, you know, he's, he goes back and forth, and he's asking people like, have you ever tried to, you know, use and then and then quit and and go on and just the way he the way he sang that song, like it was all emotion, it has so much heart and passion in it. As a teenager, or like I, you know, I actually, I, yeah, I guess I was still a teenager, I was like nineteen, but I was like a freshman in college. Um, that was at that moment when I listened to that song and actually listened to it, is when I understood. I finally understood what they were battling, and I can no longer be mad at them. I was no longer frustrated with them or angry with them. I was angry and frustrated at the situation because I remember when I listened to that song, like I sat. I listened to it once, and I remember it just kind of grabbed me. And then I looked to it, listened to it the second time, and I sat there, and I almost cried. My eyes welled up because if you just you hear it, you'll see what I'm talking about. The 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 pain that he's expressing in that song, it's like wow, like that's what they're dealing with. And it was and it wasn't until then that I that that, that I could really grasp it. And part of that too probably probably because I was older. You know, I'm off on my own. I'm I'm, I'm developing more. I'm a college student. I'm, I'm off on my own. I'm experiencing a lot more. And at the time when I was in the house dealing with that, you know, I was, you know, I was, I was a young kid, and I just couldn't, you know, I couldn't rationalize it. But I know exactly what you mean when you say, like, yeah, sober people think, you know, I was one of those people that thought of, like, you, you want to do this. You want to be this way. You don't want to get better. You're not trying to get better. And it couldn't be further from the truth. Right. Yeah, it's, uh, it's difficult to understand for for people that you know for family members for people that know the addict the alcoholic um but there's i mean we don't use the term as much anymore but the term chemically dependent that your your body and your mind actually become dependent on the substance right so with alcohol specifically um you know the the withdrawal can kill you because your body becomes so used to getting it all the time, where if you just stop using it, you can die. 
And so it's that, I mean, that's the most extreme example of it's, it's absolutely anything but choice. The choice when you get up in the morning, if you're chemically dependent, if you're at that progressive stage of the disease, the choice you have is to keep using or die. I mean, that's how twisted it gets. That's in, you know, in the, when the disease has progressed. It's a progressive, it's a chronic progressive disease. So acute in medical terms, right? Right. Acute means it's short-lived. It's, a, it's an acute or short episode, right? Right. You had a, an acute uh, appendicitis attack, right? Your right. appendix broke down. You had a, an attack on your appendix. Yep. It was a short event. Addiction is not a, an acute disease. It's progressive. It's chronic. It gets worse over time. It's there for the long haul. It's there for the long haul. That's Which is right. why treatment is a long haul. It's an everyday thing. I've heard exactly. people with addiction issues, they never say that they cure. They say they're always in recovery is what I've heard. It's a very helpful way to, uh, to look at the disease. So uh, in, in the book uh, of Alcoholics Anonymous, they which is a very helpful resource for, for many, many people uh, all over the world for, for many, many years. Um, they look at it as a daily reprieve, that you get the chance when you get up to treat your disease. And so that's why uh, things like uh, doing daily readings to ground yourself, to get your mind right, right. to be in recovery, to, you know, to deal with the mental aspect Yep, and uh, you know the serenity prayer, um, things like that become very helpful tools to treat the disease, and that's really um, that's really the way that a lot of people look at it is that that you have to treat it because because it does affect the brain, you know, and if if you go too long, that's why a lot of people relapse, you know. Yeah, they have the disease and then they stop treating it, and then four, five, six, seven. I've had friends that have been sober for five years and relapsed, you know, yeah. 10 years, and then all of a sudden relapsed. It's like, why would you go back? Well, it wasn't a choice. You know, it's a, it's a tricky, uh, tricky, tricky, tricky cunning, baffling disease. It's, yeah, it, it's very hard to explain or understand, but, but, but understanding that people lose control, you know. Mm-hmm. Like when I drove the, my vehicle... Right, I didn't. I didn't make the choice to endanger myself or others. I was out of control. You know, I had lost control of the reasoning of my brain. It was under the influence. You know. Now that doesn't mean I'm not saying that you're not responsible. Right. You know, I don't want to get into, you know, responsibility. I'm saying that the my ability to to make good decisions. Uh, when I was drunk or high, it was compromised. Was absolutely compromised, and that's what's difficult for uh, the people that are affected by the disease by having to watch it. And you know, um, why else would would a person abuse their 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 children? You know, like I just I believe that people people want the best for their loved ones. You know, you don't. You don't wake up in the morning and say, I'm going to bring pain to those I love the most in the world. Like, that's, that's not... Doesn't make sense. Doesn't make, it doesn't make any sense. You know? Right. You get up in the morning and say, oh, you know, today I'm going to get better. I'm going to do better. I'm going to, you know, I'm not going to get high today. I'm not going to go out and cop. I'm not going to, 
you know I'm not gonna go uh, buy a bottle I'm gonna I'm gonna do right and then and then you do it again you know and a lot of pe a lot of addicts that you talk to it's like every day I try to quit every single day I want to quit you know it's just this this torturous reality and then they end up going back and using you know so so same question but I'm gonna turn it around now mm -hmm. what do you think is the hardest thing the most difficult thing for uh, for addicts to comprehend or understand about their disease that it becomes embedded that it becomes the way of life um, did you say the hardest thing to what say that again for an, for an addict to understand or, or comprehend about their disease I think the most frustrating thing is how embedded it gets that it's it becomes the way of life and you don't think you can change it and that you try and try and try I mean for me for 15 years you know I, I dealt with the guilt and the shame of you know waking up and not knowing what I did the night before, not not uh, you know having loss of memory, um, loss of control, and uh, saying I'm going to quit, I'm going to stop, you know, and so living in that in that reality where you repeat those patterns over and over and over, you know you want to quit, you know you should quit, but you just keep going at it, and you just keep going at it, and you, and so for. You know, it, when I look at it in, in the context of um, the people that I've worked with in a counseling setting, whether it's in a hospital or a, a residential facility or in an, in an outpatient program, uh, I think the hardest part for people is to see the damage that their addiction has done to those that they love, whether it's their children or their spouse or their other family members, and to themselves. Right? right, over a long period of time, um, I remember working with a woman one time in uh, in a hospital setting, and she had been a daily drinker for thirty years, and she was just coming off the. So she had to uh, be medicated. She had to be. It, it had to take Basically weaned off of meds it. during her detox process for the first 72 hours to help her body adjust. Right. <clears throat> and so she had three days off of alcohol, and it was the first three days sober that she had had in 30 years. Wow. So she's sitting in this group with 25 other people, and she shared that, and she was just like, I'm starting to see my life clear for the first time in 30 years and I was like oh my gosh revelatory yeah so it's just it's a it's a powerful disease and it's uh, the damage that it does uh, it, it's very difficult to uh, hearing you talk about how you had that shift is is a good thing you know where you were able to see like that's not that's not the people that I love. Something has yeah. happened here. It took so long though, too, yeah. and 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 like I and, and like I said, like when it hit me, I had the worst amount of guilt ever because I felt like I was being a jackass to them the whole time. Like I like I didn't respect them while they were going through that. Um, and it it, it bothered me to know that this whole time I didn't 
I, I, I didn't have respect for uh, you know some of my elders um, because I like to pride myself as a very respect, uh, respectful and nice person. Um, always yes ma'am, no ma'am, yes sir, no sir, do the little things. Um, but with them, I couldn't do it because I felt like they were destroying their lives and everybody else's life um, off sheer will and to know that that all that time I couldn't have been any more wrong it was just so much like shame and guilt with that like I felt horrible like I almost didn't know how to uh, approach them afterwards mm-hmm. you know because I'd, I'd been wrong all this time right. and I was so and I held on to so much like venom and anger about it um, yeah that was that was tough yeah but it couldn't have been nearly as tough as it was for them to bat, you know, to battle it and what they right. were dealing with mentally either. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there, and so there's an interesting thing that happens when. So the way that I look at it is, uh, as the disease progresses, you you lose more and more choice. The the deeper it gets, right? Right. So the the deeper the hole of addiction, the less choice you have about whether you can control that or not, and. So the interesting thing is that once you get clean, once you get sober, once you get on a on a path of recovery, right? You get your your reasoning back, you get your physical health back, all of those areas of your life that were affected by the disease, you get some control back. Some of it takes longer to get that control back, but so you you get choice back once you get into recovery. So then the the accountability piece in working with people in early recovery is what are you going to do to treat your disease so that you keep that choice in your life, right? Right. Because right now when you get up in the morning, you're clear-headed. You have your health. You have the ability to, um, you know, say what you're going to do with your day. You, you know, you can think, you can plan, you can follow your actions, so that's the that's the kind of interesting part of it is really trying to hold people accountable to what the opportunity that they have you know it's like you're not you're not deep in that addiction anymore so treat it you know understand it and treat it on a daily basis and figure out what that means for you um, yeah it's uh it's an interesting interesting disease what's the most difficult part about your job would you say um people that come into treatment for addiction um their lives are are a train wreck and a lot of times the amount of issues that they bring to the treatment setting uh can be a little bit overwhelming for for themselves for their loved ones for you know the other uh you know the peers right that they're going through treatment with the anger the frustration the pain so if you've been let's say you've been a meth addict uh for the last 3 years the the condition of your life the the person that you've devolved into the effects of that disease are not a pretty sight right, right. so all of a sudden you take away that that chemical that has been your coping mechanism and all of these dysfunctions come out all of these you know the inability to deal with emotions um, uh, dramatic emotional swings a lot of a lot of anger a lot of fear so I think it 
that's difficult um, because it's just uh, it can be very volatile, and not not volatile in uh, you know like violent terms because right. um, I think that's people maybe maybe have it's a perception overused. yeah people maybe have a perception that it's you know working in you know if it's uh, working in a specific setting like I worked in a hospital detox unit and for two years and and uh, we never at least while I was working we never had one physical fight it's not like you know, uh, no, I know. You know, if you're if you're in the city of Minneapolis detox unit down on 1800 Chicago, that's a little different setting. People are brought there by the police, so there's a little bit different uh, circumstances. The, yeah, the violence is uh, a little bit closer to the to the surface, but yeah. So just just all of those issues, um, it, it's hard to see people in that much pain, so that can be difficult. Um, but I like the work. I like. Um, I like working with people. I like um, I like sitting with people and talking and being. Uh, people just want to be accepted. Yeah, know? they want to have uh, someone tell them that it's going to be okay. Kind of show them that reassurance, mm-hmm. that security. Yep, give them some some information that's going to help them move through the process and. Group, group therapy, group treatment uh, is a really powerful thing because you look around and you're like, man, I'm not alone here, you know. I can dig it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So earlier you talked about uh, relapse and stuff like that. Um, can you, I guess, outline or talk about some of the circumstances or um, how support system can... Uh, prohibit a relapse or if you have a horrible support system you know aid in a relapse yeah so I was talking I was talking with a guy <clears throat> the other night and he he uh, he's getting help right now for for alcoholism and one of his main motivators right now is uh, is the DWI. So he has legally mandated treatment, right? Which is okay. That's uh, we talk a lot about what motivates people, whether it's an intrinsic motivator, whether it's you know extrinsic. You know, is it coming from you from the inside? Is it coming from the outside from your family or legal? It doesn't really matter to me um, as long as you're uh, getting help because. Uh, External motivators can end up motivating internal change. Right. But this guy said, um, "Yeah, he said I I, uh, I knew I, I had to give up alcohol about a year ago, but I thought I could still keep smoking weed, and so for about six months I smoked just weed. He said I wasn't smoking alcohol; I was smoking weed." And I thought it was working really well. And I said to him, I said, yeah, because you, you knew you had to use the weed because you needed to use something to take the edge off, right? And he right. smiled and he laughed and he was like, exactly. And I was like, but now you know you can't smoke weed because that leads to you either going back to alcohol and then you're, you're getting high and drinking or 
it, you just you don't like it when you're just smoking weed either, right? And he was like, yeah. So, so now he's trying to be sober from all substances. He he realizes that he can't smoke weed, he can't drink alcohol. And what I told him was, I said, yeah. I said, you got to figure out what's going on in your life that makes you on a daily basis feel that you got to take the edge off, right? Like something's out of balance. So talk about self-care, talk about balance. What is it that was leading? So is it that every day after work you're so stressed when you come home? The, you know, is it stuff with your spouse? Is it financial? Is it that your your life has little meaning? You know, you, do you live by yourself and the only way you can get through the night is is to get high and relax and zone out because you really don't have a have a life? You know, what, what is that edge that you're trying to take off? Because an, an edge is not a good thing, right? Right. You're being pushed up against the edge. Does that mean you're, you're about to jump off? Is the edge the edge of a knife that you're trying to dull the edge of the knife? Your life has got this knife to your throat. Like what, what metaphor, what analogy do you want to use, you know? But right. That, that's how people use substances you know, in quotation marks, socially, right? Correct. To take the edge off. And why do you think happy hour is such a, a pervasive thing, right? <laughs> yeah. Because your job is such a mess. You hate it. It's so stressful. You know, not everybody hates their job, but, you know, it's like, it, oh, Friday comes and people working looking for, for an weekend, excuse right? to get out. Yeah, right. and then they just tear it up and. Monday comes all over right. again. So in recovery, you got to figure out what what was it in your life or what is it in your life that's causing that edge that you got to, and then you have to figure out ways to to do that so that you can maintain your integrity and your principles and not violate the covenant that you've established with your partner and you know like what what is that about? So you got to come up with ways to live a spiritual life and to be a a grounded person is that exercise is it meditation is it prayer is it um church is it community activities maybe you need to be the parent that you should be you know get involved with your kid's school like you know right maybe that's maybe you're just way too focused on work you know i can dig it yeah cool cool so just like one little quick follow-up mm -hmm. do you think can people make recoveries all on their own, or do they need a support system? Yeah, well, part of the confusion or, or you know, the interesting thing about the disease is that everybody knows somebody that uh, that is loud and proud about, well, I didn't need any treatment. I just quit on my own. You know, it's like, yeah. well, that's great for you, dude. Like, not everybody can quit on their own, right? Right. Well, I just went, one day I just decided I wanted to go cold turkey. It's like, okay, that's great. Good for you. Not everybody can do that. You right. know? So the one, one of the funny things <laughs> that we, we talk about is that that's great if you went to cold turkey, but are you still a jerk? <laughs> are, you, are you still living your life as an ass? Right. Right? You still mad? You still angry? You still got that edge that you're living on? You just don't do anything to take it off? You take it out on the people in your life? You know, yeah, you might not be using substances anymore, but ask the people in your life, are you a pleasant person? Do right. you live a spiritually grounded life? Do you have a good balance? Right. I don't know. Maybe. So so the question, yeah, definitely people can people can uh, quit on their own. 
Um, people can do it. Um, just like any other disease, you know? Right. Like you can, people can cure diabetes on their own. They don't have to go to the hospital. I'm going to put it back in that context. People can cure high blood pressure without seeing a doctor, you know? People right. can deal with addiction without seeing a professional. But if you, so one of the things that we've learned is that um, addiction is so highly connected to isolation. Mm -hmm. And so that if you seek a community where you work with other people and be a part of a, a fellowship or, you know, and again, whether that's through your church, through AANA or any other recovery-based group, um, there's something about being in a group setting for addicts that is incredibly affirming and so 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 the uh the support system is actually like therapeutic and, and it's just like group therapy yeah and I, and i suppose it could also be therapeutic for the family too those who mm-hmm. were adversely affected by somebody else's yeah uh, substance abuse so if there's anybody out there right now that uh, is listening to this that has a loved one in their life and they are struggling. That's why uh, Al-Anon is the family branch of AA. And what it does is is it helps family members of uh, alcoholics and addicts learn that the nature of the disease is that you can't control what your loved one does, right? Like right. no matter how many... They're going to do what they're going to do. They're going to do what they're going to do. And that's a helpful life lesson, addiction or no addiction, right? Right. Like you can't control other people. People are, you know, driven by self-will and they're going to do what they're going to do. I've always said we're all inherently selfish. Whether we do something great for somebody Mm -hmm. or we harm somebody, we do it because of the way it makes us feel. Mm -hmm. You know, because you can have an, you, you can feel, you can do, help people out of selfish uh, out of selfish motivations because it drives you, it makes you feel good about what you did for somebody else. Right. And so I've always been, I've always been one to say that, that human beings are inherently selfish and people kind of <laughs> look at me like, this dude's a pessimist or whatever. I'm like, nah, I'm just trying to be logical about it. Like, everything you do, you do we're, it because what? How does it make you feel on the inside? We're ego-driven. Yeah. That's why we have to work so hard to be, uh, to have the, the principles of uh, of service to others and because it goes against the kind of the ego-driven self-will stuff that's kind of inherent. Right, and, right. But when you do that, you know, when you start living your life where you try to do it for others, whether it's your family or your community or whatever, it's it's a pretty powerful thing. Um, but the, the point about Al-Anon is that when people, people first go to Al-Anon, they think that they're there for to help their loved one to get out of addiction, but it's actually to help them deal with how addiction has affected them as the loved one. So it's about how to learn how to let go and how to take care of yourself in relationship to the addict or alcoholic. I can do that. And so if you're out there and you're you're struggling with, with a loved one and you've done everything you can and they just they won't get help and they just seem to be killing themselves go online and look up Al-Anon and go to an Al-Anon meeting it's 
could be a great resource. There, there's an awful lot of support groups out there for addicts and, and family members. Oh, yeah. cool. I can make it. So mm-hmm. can you um, w- tell us, like, what's the, probably the, one of the most harmful things somebody can do for somebody else who's in the midst of recovery, who's got to face mm-hmm. the task of recovery? I would say for one, like, yeah, that, and mm-hmm. probably, like, enabling or bringing whatever they are battling in their presence. Yeah, yeah, people don't, uh, people don't need money. You know, people don't need, um, they don't need to be helped in that situation. Um, we talk about healthy boundaries. Right. And, um, you know, I, I was dealing with a friend recently who had a family member and they had been given him money, you know, and it became very clear that they were using the money to buy drugs, you know, and it's like, you just, you can't keep doing that, you know, and that, and that's really difficult for family members. So you, but you have to, you have to put up boundaries and you have to say, you know, I can't do this for you anymore. It's as painful as it is to watch how this disease is tearing your life apart and what'll happen if I say you can't stay in the basement anymore or whatever, but, but you have to, because it's, by dealing with the full consequences of it, sometimes it takes that in order for people to to get the help that they need. I can dig it. Yeah. So, can you talk to the listeners about the different forms of treatment that are available? Sure. And maybe um, the strengths of those, the strengths of those options, and and also kind of touch on like I know there's some uh, addictions out there that might have like limited treatment options, and maybe touch on that too. Yeah. So the first thing that um, <clears throat> that a family has to do or, or an individual is to figure out if they have insurance and whether or not they have any resources to get treatment. So uh, most insurance companies will, will fund treatment, which is great. It hasn't always been that way. Um, so if you, got, if you have insurance and you're struggling with addiction, get help. You know, call, call a treatment facility, call call somebody and get an assessment. So what they do is they take you through, and they can do an initial assessment on the telephone and they'll ask you questions. You know, they'll say, how often do you use? Do you have consequences? Do you feel that your use affects your family members? Do you feel that your use causes you problems in your job? Do you use every day? Do you feel guilty after you use? Just this whole litany of questions. Right. Do you have... uh, Uh, Do you drink during the day? Do you use during the day? Do you um, use for multiple days at a time? Um, These kind of things. And that's in order to assess whether whether you just have a problem. You know, is it a... um, What's the severity? So that's that's what they're trying to determine. If you have a substance use disorder and how severe it is. Right. So if it's it's, uh, severe... um, then they're going to recommend treatment. And a lot of times when people go far enough in, in the progression that they, that they need residential treatment. But you can, you can go, some people, their first treatment is an outpatient. So residential treatment is the typical, uh, when you think of like a, a Hazelden model where you go, 
the term residential meaning that you live there mm-hmm. for you know the average is uh, uh, thirty days, twenty eight days, and um, you immerse yourself in that process, and it really gives you a good uh, jump uh, into recovery and tries to to help stabilize the person. So uh, residential is a good option. Um, and and now employers have to have to let you come back. You know they can't they can't fire you because you went to treatment. Right now, whether or not you know they're going to welcome you back, I don't know. <laughs> a lot of people go into treatment and don't tell their employer. They just say I'm I'm dealing with a medical issue. Right, because they have so much shame about it. Personally, I recommend being honest with people. I think the more you can get out from under the living the secretive life, the better that better off you're going to be. But um, yeah, so so that's residential. If it's uh, if there's some health, more health issues like uh, where it's real severe, um, more immediate health issues because of it, uh, you might be in a hospital setting in an inpatient unit. So that could last up to a month. So there's different levels. So the inpatient, residential, and then outpatient. Okay. And so outpatient, there's. Um, an intensive outpatient program. They call it IOP, and um, that's that can be mm, like 20 hours of programming a week. So you can't work full-time when you do that. you got to do part-time work, and um, so it's like maybe half a day a lot of times. When I went through treatment, I went through outpatient, and it was, man, that was a long time ago. <laughs> I'm having a hard time remembering. I think it was two nights a week, or was it four nights a week? Um, but it was for 28 days. I would go. I went there after work, and uh, so yeah. There's different levels of it. There's different levels of intensity. Meaning right, the hours, right. Hours during the week, but so you don't have. I mean, you can get treatment and and still keep your job. You know, I think people people think that if they go into treatment, they have to just give up everything and. And do it that way, but that's not really the case. So, you got to get assessed. Um, it's easier with insurance, but like I said, the state of Minnesota gives each county, so that if you go on the county website and you look, every county should have a chemical health page right. where they talk about uh, how to do assessments. And now, if you go in off the street and you say to the county chemical dependency, you know, desk person, I'm here to get an assessment. You're not necessarily going to get an assessment that day. That's where, you know, resources and the overwhelming amount of people that need help. So I'm not, you know, I think that probably varies from county to county as far as how effective the services are, how long the wait is, right? how hard it is to get into treatment after that. But there's a lot of quality treatment programs that take uh, county funding. So you can get, you can get good treatment. If without insurance, okay, it's called a Rule Twenty Five. So that's the that's the term. If anybody out there, um, I was helping a friend recently, helping their father. He was an older gentleman, right, and he didn't have insurance, and uh, he needed to go in for a Rule Twenty Five, and I believe he did that and ended up getting treatment. And so, I mean, it, it's there. It can, you know, just like any other social services, it can be a difficult system to navigate, but but there's help out there. Cool, mm-hmm. cool. And is there um 
Is there any particular addiction that you haven't seen, like, that there are many options, like, for, tr- for, for, for treatment from? Like, for instance, because I'm thinking about some of the, like, the more, like, like, you hear about all the substances and what, whatnot, but, like, there's a guy that the, the, the played on my, uh, uh, plays on my football team who, he was just gone. Uh, this past season for a long, short, large chunk of the season. We're like, did he get released? Did he quit? Like, what the deal was? And it wound up, you know, hearing from the team owner. He actually put himself in uh, in treatment for for gambling, mm-hmm. um, which I applauded him, and uh, everybody welcomed him back when he came back because that's huge for you to be able to recognize that you got an issue and to step away and take care of, the, you know, take care of that yourself. Yeah. You know, a lot of people, you know, aren't at that point yet. No, um, I'm, but I'm, I just don't hear about a lot of different options for for you know for things like that. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. That's uh, those are in the category of behavioral addictions. Mm-hmm. So you got gambling, food falls under that category. Um, sex is an addiction that's treated. Uh, sex addicts. Um, those are are three of the most common ones. Now. Gaming, online addiction, shopping, those are all things that are being studied and researched. And, but, but gambling, sex, and food, all three of those behavioral addictions, you can get treatment for. They're just, because they're newer to the table right. as far as the treatment world, yeah. there's less programs that address those addictions. But they're real. I mean, you... You look at the you look at the criteria that and the kind of the symptoms, the behavioral manifestations. And they fall right in line with them. Oh yeah, loss of control. It's powerful. I can dig that. Mm-hmm. So what are what are some of the things that you feel we can do through like legislation that can better help the address uh, like address the issues of addiction? I feel like you did that a little bit earlier when you talked about making more tre- uh, treatment facilities available. Um, kind of putting more funds there, but are there some other things that you think um, could be done? Yeah, I, I think just getting a, I mean, obviously the, there's there's some really good advocacy work going on around um, the opioid crisis. Right, right. And so allocating state dollars to address that is super important. And so that's been that's been on the on the table for the last few years, and you know it kind of I don't know it comes and goes. You know sometimes it feels like we're making some progress, sometimes it doesn't. Um, you know we we don't want addiction to to you know just be the flavor of the month. You know it's like we gotta right. we gotta do this stuff in a way that that makes addiction effective in treating the disease um, so that the next generation doesn't deal with it like like we have in the past you know so yeah advocating at at the state level getting involved um, you know if it's in your just being being courageous to to talk about it you know on a personal level community level uh, whatever your communities are bring it you know, bring the topic of addiction. Uh, people need the more people share their stories, the more others will 
get help, whether it's family members or whether it's people that are struggling with addiction. Um, and that's really where the, where the healing comes in, you know. And would you say that's what probably the best thing that we can do as individuals to slow down the spread of addiction? Is what? Uh, kind of people telling their stories? Yeah. it's it, To me, that's a powerful thing, you know, um, is getting out. Uh, there, and there's a lot of ways to do it. There's uh, September actually is uh, recovery month. How about that? You had me on <laughs> your podcast in September, and it's recovery month. I didn't know that. And I actually didn't even know there was a recovery month. Yeah, see, that's what I'm talking about. Now you know. Yeah. Yeah. We're sharing information, <laughs> teaching, educating. Um, yeah, so like last Saturday they had the Walk for Recovery, you know, like how they do Walk for March of Dimes yep. and Walk for yep. Everything. And sure do. Walk for, I was going to make some kind of smart-ass comment, but like every, <laughs> everything's got to walk. Everything's got to walk, right? Right. Um, it's that's a day a good for thing. everything and could, a walk yeah, for everything. It's a good thing because people can come out and, you know, family members can come out and support. And So they just had the Walk for Recovery, and there's an organization that helps to advocate that, the Minnesota Recovery Connection, MRC. Um, so you can go to their website and look at all the resources. Um, there's a ton of resources out there. People, it, Can you, you mind rattling some of those off? Because that's one of the things I was going to ask you to do before you uh, – before you get off here today, is if there's people out there who are looking to learn more about different resources that are out there um, and to get help for a loved one or for themselves, um, what are some of those resources out there that people can tap, tap into? Yeah, so so like I said, the one of them is the Minnesota Recovery Connection, and, uh, and that's MRC uh, for short, and just go online and, and look them up. There's all kinds. So they list all the different types of support groups out there. Yeah. Some of them are 12-step based. So 12-step um, is, is kind of the generic term for AA, Alcoholics Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous. Um, there's a CA, Cocaine uh, Anonymous. Uh, there's all kinds of different 12-step support groups. And then there's also... Um, other support groups that are not 12-step based. Uh, one of them is called Health Realization. Um, there's just all kinds of stuff out there. So learning those names, going online, looking those up. Minneapolis and St. Paul both have what they call uh, intergroup. So if you look up Minneapolis AA or St. Paul AA online, um, and basically those are just kind of uh, organizing bodies and they help to organize all the meetings. And they have a meeting finder. So you can go on the Minneapolis Intergroup website, and you can, let's say it's a, uh, let's say it's a Tuesday night, and you, you've had it, you listen to this podcast, and you want to find an Al-Anon meeting because you can't handle it anymore. Right. You go look for Al-Anon meeting Tuesday night, 9 o'clock start time, and you will find one. Like there's hundreds and hundreds of meetings. It's unbelievable. Yeah, St. Paul has it has the same thing. All the meetings in St. Paul, um, and then um, you know, really anywhere. I mean, the county level, right? Right. So um, there's there's free resources at the county. So go on the county website, look up chemical health, and then look at all the resources that they have to help people. Um, any of the treatment programs around town, uh, you know, there's, there's information programs. Um, it, 
hospitals have uh, like monthly or weekly edu community education sessions. Um, there really are really a lot of things. So you just kind of have to start poking around and... And, and you'll turn but, something But up. it's there, yeah. All right. Yeah. Um, and, and lastly, if there's anyone listening to this who is dealing with issues um, or has somebody else that are dealing with issues, kind of, you know, like I was saying before, um, and they just, they don't quite know what to do, like, what would you say to them? What's the best course of action? Like, what would you say to them personally, like, as far as how to, how to get past it, how to, how to address it, or how they should feel? Say that, say that one more time. So if there's anybody out, you know, with, with addiction, uh, addiction issues right now listening to this or somebody who has a loved one that uh, is facing addiction issues, what would you tell them right now as far as the best course of action for them to take? Talk to the people around them. Okay. Stop hiding. Um, ask for help. That's the, that's the hardest part for, for people to get past is is that initial because it's so you're so filled with shame and pain you know because you don't get to that point where things are are bad yeah. without doing damage right right so the the admission that you are in a place where you can't do it anymore you can't handle it you can't cope is very difficult but once you do once you say to your loved one once you say to your friend um, can I can I talk to you? Um, I need help, and th that that's the beginning. That's the beginning of the healing. It's the beginning of the liberation of the pain and the you know the chains of addiction and and uh, but just do it. You know, take that step. Talk to somebody. Share, and then and together you find the resources. You know, you call a you call a treatment facility. You call somebody that you know. Right. I called Doug Anderson. You know, I had a friend of a friend call me uh, a week ago, and it, it's just it's one of the most uh, powerful things when someone calls to say, "I need help." You know, and and I'm you know being in recovery and um, having uh, information and access to resources. It's I'm always very honored when people call and and ask for help. So you just but but that first step is hard. You know, it's not. I'm not. I'm not trying to minimize it. It's. It's very difficult. But that, that's the thing I would tell people is that right. help is there and, and hope is there. You know. Yeah. I mean, it's like that late night, that late night commercial about addiction. You know, it's like hope is there. <laughs> Reach out. But it's true. Right. It really is. I mean, you, you can you can get cured. It's not. Uh, there's a lot of hope. In the recovery community, and I, I forgot to mention one thing. But are we getting close to wrapping up? We're 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 done whenever we're done. There's All right, no cool. Time limit on. Because this is your show. <laughs> it's so cool. I love it. All right, I wanted to mention a couple resources um, that <clears throat> are important to me. One of them uh, is not something that I'm directly involved in, but I have a lot of friends that are involved in it. There's so many. So that's the other thing about um, uh, the recovery community. It's got to be a nice network that, that oh develops. Oh, my gosh. It's unbelievable, Will. And a like, pretty supportive one as well. Being the home huh? of Hazelden and, like, Minnesota is recovery central. Like, the, the treatment of addiction was started here. Um, just a little side note. Uh, my grandpa uh, was treated for alcoholism at the Wilmer State Hospital in 1958. 
Wow. You talk about the genetic predisposition. Right? Yeah. Yeah. But like it goes way back. Um, so we've been treating people for addiction here for a long, long time. And specifically in the Twin Cities, because of the, the uh, predominance of Hazelden and uh, other treatment providers, we, uh, in the Wilmer Hospital and St. Mary's and other places, um, we, we have an incredibly strong recovery community. So there's, uh, in St. Paul, in fact, it's over at Goodrich in Maplewood is one of the fields. They play, oh, yeah, they yeah, play yeah, at Goodrich yeah, yeah. and then they yep. also play in yep. a, a couple other fields, one in Little Canada. But there's a sober softball league. Not just a sober softball team. But the, the whole league. The entire league. There's 30 teams. That's dope. Yeah, I know. So when you talk about getting into recovery, like a part of it is that for for people in early recovery, you think that everything about your life has to change. You're like, oh, man, my like I can't do anything I used to do, you know? It's like that's not true. But you can, you and can. you can find other people who are dealing with the same things that you're doing. Because there's actually a community of people. Right. And they're going out and they're playing softball together with other people in recovery. They're bringing their families. They're not hanging out drinking beer. They're not getting high. They're having really a nice time in recovery. And it, it's super cool. So that's, uh, there's, a, there's a website, uh, St. Paul, I think it's, if they look up St. Paul Sober Softball League, they'll find it. Uh, St. Paul CD Softball League. I don't know the exact website, but, but if you look that up, you'd find a website and amazing resource for people in recovery. And then the other one is something that's real important to me, and uh, we're coming up on our third season of uh, recovery community hockey. Yeah, 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 yeah. You're the you're the goaltender, right? Yeah, I play goalie. Yeah, yeah, it's super fun. We actually have a team of men in recovery called the St. Paul Thirty Fivers, and that's named after the year 1935, which was the year AA started. Nice. So that's super cool. That's an important part of my recovery. A lot of my best friends uh, are on that team. They're all in recovery. They're men that are really important to me. Uh, help hold me accountable in my life and in my recovery and we have a great time because hockey uh like most things uh are very is very tightly connected to drinking right. and using the culture of it just very difficult so to be able to go back to the rink and play hockey and a lot of us hockey players you know we we had dreams some of us were closer to the dreams than others just being <laughs> just being honest um my dream was shattered young but um but but where addiction stood in the way of us achieving our potential you know yeah. so so we have uh, and in fact i'm going to share this with you oh, i should have brought it i have a on a flash drive i have a video that we did about recovery community hockey but so, yeah, so we have this team, the St. Paul 35ers, that we're starting our sixth season. And Why do I want to say, did you guys, like, win the, win the championship this past year or yeah, like tournament? Did. That's what I thought. Yeah, yeah. Two, right. two-time champs. <laughs> yeah, they're trying to bring us up to the next level now because we've been dominating. So You're going to make that move? Yeah, we're fighting it. <laughs> <laughs> but um, so we have the team, and then we also – so there were so many hockey players that, that were coming to us saying, hey, I want to play too. And we were like, well, our roster's full, you know. So we were like, well, we just need to do a pickup skate, an open hockey night. And right. so we do every Wednesday night at Drake Arena in St. Paul, and it's open to anybody, men or women, in the recovery community. And we're starting our third season, 
and we have sponsors that help us pay for the ice time. Nice. So we got Hazelden, we have New Way, we have The Retreat, we have Boterre Recovery Institute, which is a treatment organization, and then St. Paul's Sober Living. And those five organizations spring for the ice time, and we play hockey uh, one night a week, and it's free to people in recovery all season long. We're about to start on October I think Wednesday, October 3rd, our third season is starting, and people can find us on Facebook at Recovery Community Hockey. So there you go. Nice. Boom! There you have it. So if there's any uh, hockey players out there uh, who are currently in recovery and looking to get back on the ice, get with your man Doug. Contact, contact uh, those resources that he threw out there. So, man, I just want to say I really appreciate you coming out and uh, – just telling us all you know, you know, uh, uh, about this life of recovery um, for those who who need help or, you know, those who are seeking help for family members. Um, and you and I are going to have some, some further conversations yeah. about a couple more episodes you and I are going to do. So when we get off here and we wrap up, you know, at some point in time these next couple of days, let's go ahead and get those down in the books. But um. Once again, I'd like to say, man, I appreciate it. Thank you, Will. I, I just uh, thank you for inviting me. This was super fun. Just had a blast and an uh, important topic to me, and I appreciate being able to share and look forward to uh, doing more. Thank you. For sure. So uh, if anybody out there has any comments, critiques, um, stories you'd like to tell, some other resources you want to give out there, um, anything, uh, you, got, you guys know how to get at me, chilltimepod at gmail.com. And you know I'll get back to you uh, as swiftly as I can. So um, once again, thanks for joining me, joining me, or joining us, me uh, and Mr. Doug Anderson. And I'm out. Thank you.
Kick it, quit it, kick it.